Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Welcome to the show, Gib. I'm so excited to have you on. Hello, Melissa. Thank you for having me. I have been waiting for this for a long time because when I was reading Escaping the Build Trap, I read so many of your things about product strategy. I was really obsessed with learning more about how you did it at Netflix. And I actually used it as a case study in the strategy section of the book. So I'm really excited to dive into that more with you. But to get our listeners up to speed with who you are, can you introduce yourself a little bit and tell them how you got to be this amazing person at Product Strategy and all the wonderful stuff you've done? Sure. Thank you for flattering me. (laughs) Not sure if it's warranted. You know, at the highest level, I joined Netflix in 2005 as the VP of product. In 2010, I joined Chegg, which is a textbook rental and homework help service as the, the CPO. And then five years after that, I committed myself to the life which I live today, which is very flexible, but I spent a lot of time focused on teaching outside the classroom. I focus a lot on product strategy, on culture, on helping product managers all over the world. That's great. And a lot of time on skiing too. It is true that one of my metrics is I I try to ski my age in days. So this year I will be 59 on March 28th. And I I know I won't make my goal this year because COVID really has slowed me down on that front. Oh, that's a shame. But happy early birthday. Well, thank you. Well, hopefully next year you'll get to do all 60 and that would be Very good. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk to you a little bit about strategies. When I was reading about Netflix, I, I thought that the strategy you presented and the way that you really communicated their progress, right, from getting big on DVDs to leading streaming to expanding internationally and then going into original content, it makes so much sense to me, right? Like I'm reading that going what? wow, yes, that is a strategy. Like that is a clear cut strategy. And you've come up with so many of these frameworks, you know, with wonderful acronyms like GEM and Glee and DHM to really define your product strategy. Can you tell us a little bit more about how do you think about product strategy? Like what does that mean to you? And what are some of the strategies that you advocate for? Sure. So it is true as a teacher, I'm always thinking about tools and models and frameworks that give folks a way to think and talk about stuff. And as companies get bigger, we're full of humans and communicating clearly with each other becomes increasingly hard, which is why I use these tools, models, and frameworks. Probably the most important one for me is this notion of DHM, which is product leader's job is to delight customers in hard to copy, margin enhancing ways. When I approach new products or companies, I'm usually thinking about that first. So to give you an example, uh, at Netflix, one of the key strategies was personalization. And the theory, which we, we proved out eventually, was that personalization would delight customers. It would make it easier for them to find movies they love. It would be wonderfully hard to copy. So think about the tools, the technology, the algorithms that they're using with 200 million members today. And then the third component is margin enhancement. And that's simply 
create profit, create a business that works. So at Netflix, the retention in the old days, it was 10% canceled every month. Today, 2% canceled every month. So that's a huge improvement in the business. The lifetime value went from 100 bucks to almost $300 a day. The other thing that's cool about personalization is it enables Netflix to be really smart about how they spend their money on content. So for instance, they'll predict that Stranger Things will get 100 million people watching it, and they'll spend 500 million bucks on that. They'll predict that 20 million people will watch BoJack Horseman, like me, I'm a freak. And because of that, they'll spend 100 million bucks on that. And then they'll predict that 1 million people like me will watch Everest climbing documentaries, and they'll spend 5 million on that. And I call that right-sizing, which is enabled by personalization, but it's one of the ways that Netflix has managed to make a business that works. So I just gave you an example of how I use the DHM model, the notion of delighting customers in hard-to-copy, margin-enhancing ways, plays out when you think about developing a product strategy. So when I start thinking through product strategies and when I come into organizations to help deploy this, there's usually not a product strategy. There's like this lofty vision of make more money or transform into this company. And then there's a bunch of stuff on the bottom that's with the teams where they're like executing on features. We usually have to start from scratch and we have to figure out what's the right level of product strategy for each part of the organization, right? Like what is the the CEO going to be setting or the C-suite? What is the product leadership team set? What is the product director set? What are the team set? How do your frameworks kind of fit into, like which level do they kind of fall in when you're thinking about delighting people through hard to copy margin enhancing ways? Like if you're putting that guideline in, who's coming up with that? And how does that get translated into what you're going to do inside the company? Yeah, I'll answer the question sort of three ways. So first I want to describe how I think about a product vision, which is really the closest thing to helping define a company strategy. I'll give you an example of how I apply that DHM model, for instance, at my level, and I'm always the product leader, but then I'll demonstrate what I expect of product leaders who work for me and their work to define the product strategy in their swim lane. So I'll start at the top. This other model is called the Glee model. And I use it because I want product leaders to think long-term, just for a moment. So for instance, at Netflix, the way I articulated the Glee model, the G stands for, what are you going to get big on initially? The L sort of says, hey, five or 10 years after, what's that next thing that you want to lead? And then five or 10 years after that, how might you expand even further? And that's why it spells Glee. The idea at Netflix, we were going to get big on DVD. At some point, we were going to lead streaming. And then once we were a digital service, then and only then, we would expand internationally. And then you can see this continues forever. There's another E, expand further into original content. I mean, I can even articulate a guess on another E, five or 10 years in the future, which might be interactive stories, for instance. But that Glee model, what I'm trying to do is get people to think in waves. If you can ride a wave, good things happen. So the first wave that Netflix rode was essentially the DVD player was born. The second was the the growth of video on the internet. That was the streaming. The internationalization, the idea that you can push a button and all over the world, you can watch the same film that's been dubbed into 40 different languages. And then, you know, in perfect faith. These are always 
hypotheses. At Netflix, we experimented with an original content strategy, if you will, in circa 2007. It failed in a DVD era, but it worked extraordinarily well in 2013 with the launch of House of Cards. Anyways, that Glee model is my way of encouraging the product leader and the CEO and the whole company to, to think big about how the work that they do will play out over 10 or 20 years. You know, people tend to look down at their toes and think very incrementally. And this Glee model just nicely encourages people to think big and to think long-term. I usually will craft that. I'll typically get the CEO and the exec team to buy into that. And then when it comes to articulating the product strategy, that's for me. So I, I shared at a high level that one of the product strategies at Netflix was personalization. And there were other theories and hypotheses. We had a social strategy. You know, we had a theory that the simpler and easier the experience, the better it would work. We had a theory about building a network effect, which happened. You know, there's a huge device ecosystem today. You can watch things anytime, anywhere. But for each of those areas, I defined a swim lane. So for instance, Todd Yellen was the director of product who worked for me. His focus was personalization. And his job was to articulate the strategy for personalization. And so he would use these same tools, models, and frameworks that I use, with exception of Glee. There's only one Glee model for the company. But you know, Todd was able to say, okay, the job with personalization is to connect people with the movies they love. What do we need? We need explicit taste data. We need their ratings so we understand what they like and don't like. We'll have implicit data. You know, we know if somebody watches a movie for two minutes and quits, that's a sign. We need all the data about the movies. So who's the director? Where was it filmed? And then there's this thing called the uh, Movie Genome Project where everything is tagged. So you know it's steamy romance or you know it's got a strong female character as lead or you know it's quirky or whatever else. And then the last step there was to create algorithms that connect knowledge of people's movie tastes with the movie data and do that with algorithms and also presentation layer tactics. So at a high level, I've given you the high level strategy for personalization. And then for me, every time there's a strategy, there's a way of measuring if that strategy is working. So for instance, the proxy metric for personalization, and this was Todd's job. His job was it's kind of a wild proxy. It, and this is a proxy for retention because retention is so freaking hard to, to measure. His proxy to, to prove that personalization was going to work in the long term was the percentage of members who rated at least 50 movies, 5-0, in the course of a month. And I'll, I'll let you think about what was that number? Most people guessed 2%. The reality is that we drove it up to like 30%. So that was a proxy. You know, the, wow. the reason that people were rating movies was because they knew that the more that they rated, the better Netflix would do at helping them to find movies they love. So that's an example of a proxy metric for personalization. That was Todd's job to drive that one metric. There were a number of other metrics as well. But I just took you a little bit into the world of personalization, that swim lane, and that was Todd's area. He could articulate his personalization strategy, the proxy metrics he used to measure whether these strategies were working. And then he had projects or tactics against each. I mean, the big dog in, in getting all that rating data in the first two months of a member's life was something called the ratings wizard. Uh, we put in the tab, it said, movies, you'll heart. There was a little red heart that the design team described as fugly. 
which at the time I didn't know what that meant, but now I do. But people would click on that and it would open up and it would say, the more you rate, the better we'll do at finding movies you'll love. And there were rows of movies and people would go on these rating jacks. And that's how we collected like 10 billion pieces of data to understand people's movies tastes. I could do the same thing. I just told you about Todd's life in personalization. Brent Airy launched streaming. So he had a specific strategy and proxy metrics in his area. Megan Stern was focused on creating a simple and easy experience. Crystal Chincuti Trexel was focused on essentially DVD merchandising. So I would have a high-level product strategy, and then each of these swim lanes would have its own well-defined strategy, articulating the strategy, the proxy metrics to measure if things were working, and then the projects or tactics against each of those strategies to measure if it was working. Awesome. Uh, so here's my, my high-level summary. I would propagate the Glee model, how to think big in, in these 5, 10, 20-year chunks. It would feel very close to a company strategy. I would have a high-level strategy, and then I expected every product leader who worked for me to be able to articulate their product strategy in their swim lane. Yeah, it sounds very similar to the way that I think of the levels when I talk about product strategy. Because I do so much deployment and, and a lot of my work in the, in the past like six years consulting has been trying to get leaders to think bigger, right? And not just have them dictate a bunch of features down to teams. I usually talk about things in strategic intents, which sounds a lot like how you would come up with the Glee model, but the Glee model is very much the meat of it. Like it's your framework for thinking through what is a strategic intent. So in, in my world, it would be you know, expanding into streaming would be a strategic intent. It would be like, okay, that's the way that we want to go with the metrics associated that you talk to. And then the product initiatives would be like your personalization initiative underneath it. What are we going to do to actually look at that? And then the options I call them are the projects. So I love how this all ladders. Yeah. Yeah, Well, so, and, and you're really getting to one of the key challenges, especially as companies get bigger, which is, there's a phrase to tame it, you need to name it, right? So the importance of having shared language which is why I write a lot. <laughs> so I write on Medium about these different tools and models and frameworks. So I want people to develop shared language so they can talk about this stuff together. I'm going to jump on a question I know you want to ask me, which is, you're the product leader, a big company, and you're thinking about what's the right amount of resources to put into each of these areas. I mean, you oh, yeah. use the phrase deployment, right? Mm-hmm. I'm cheating. I'm looking at your Google Doc. Um, <laughs> it's okay. You're anticipating my questions. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the cool thing. So I do these quarterly product strategy meetings where each of these product leaders that runs a swim lane is coming forward with you know, their theories and hypotheses, their results and learnings, the A-B tests, and then these future hypotheses. And that's helping me at a high level to figure out how much to invest or not invest in different areas. So for instance, in personalization, where that proxy metric went from 1% all the way up to 29%, we kept investing more and more in personalization. There was another theory. The theory was that a social experience would improve members' lives on Netflix, that if you and I connected with each other, we could share movie ideas with each other. And we wouldn't want to leave the service because we wouldn't want to leave our friends behind, right? And that 
we launched something called Friends on Netflix. We launched it at 1% of members were using it. And after like four years of pounding our head against the wall, we drove that metric up to 5%, which is not enough if you're really trying to improve retention. So I just remember one of these quarterly product strategy meetings, we're looking at the growth of personalization where things are working really well. And then realizing that, that we really weren't proving out our hypothesis that social and friends would create a better experience for Netflix members. And there was one quarter where we just killed the friends effort. We took all those resources and put it against personalization. By the way, the consumer insight on why social and friends didn't work at Netflix, there's really two reasons. One is your friends have sucky movie tastes. And we thought we could solve that through algorithms. We couldn't. The other is you don't really want everybody to know what you were watching last night. Last night, I, I binge watch Cake Boss, right? Oh, like, yeah. You don't really want to share that with the world, right? There's some weird <laughs> stuff on Netflix, too. I don't want people knowing I watch. <laughs> there, there is some weird stuff. Anyways, these quarterly product strategy meetings, one of the big part of my job there was just to figure out the right level of resources to each of these swim lanes. You can imagine, you know, Brent Avery, we launched streaming in January of 2007. At launch, 5% of members watched at least 15 minutes in the course of a month. By the end of that first year, we were at 20%. Like, okay, let's keep doubling down on that area, right? Or Megan Stern was able to prove that a simpler, easier experience improved retention. Like, okay, Megan, go to town, figure out anything on our site experience that's complicated and just reduce it. So these are the kinds of conversations that would happen at these quarterly product strategy meetings to figure out the, the right level of resources in each area. And for me, that was a big part of my job. And it sounds like you're also, you know, you're talking about hypothesis over and over again, which I love. So yeah. lots of learning baked into what you're doing, but a lot of those hypotheses don't come to fruition, right? You were just talking about moving stuff over to personalization. One of my favorite stories about Netflix is actually Project Griffin, which was when, uh, and I, I want you to actually tell the story, but you were just telling me before we jumped on this, there was even another failure story that happened in 2005. Can you tell us a little bit about what were some big failures at Netflix and how did you use product strategy to decide to kill it? Sure. So I gave you the, the Glee model at Netflix. We're going to get big on DVD and then we're going to lead streaming and then we're going to go international. But it didn't exactly play out that way. To your point, that's a high-level hypothesis, right? We weren't really sure what the right year was to launch streaming, for instance. To uh, answer your question, a big failure circa 2005 was we got ahead of ourselves. And we invested like a year's worth of energy in launching a DVD by mail service in the UK. And one week before launch, a bad thing happened, which was there was a rumor that Amazon was going to launch a DVD by mail rental service, which like at the time we were like at a million or two members, like we were still a yipping chihuahua and Amazon was already a big dog, right? So this was totally scary for us. So one week before we launched in the UK, we canceled it. And you can imagine it was devastating. People had moved over to London, et cetera. But there were two ideas. One, we couldn't fight a war on two fronts, right? We had gotten ahead of ourselves. It's really hard to implement a system that ties into local mail systems, where if you think about it, it's really easy to stream internationally, right? 
So that was like, okay, duh, we were stupid. But the second was that Amazon was obviously a huge threat. So we needed to, to stay focused on our efforts in the US. In that case, we took all of the resources from the UK and we put them back against personalization and also the work that we needed to do to enable the launch of streaming. So that was a huge reallocation of resources. It was devastating. You can imagine if you were on the team, you know, how you felt. But at Netflix, we built this culture where you spent a lot of time helping people to understand what, what it would take to make the business effective. And in this case, people understood that you know, the right thing for the company was to cancel the launch and reallocate the resources. Okay, so now I'll get to the story that you were curious about, Project Griffin. What happened was we did launch streaming January of 2007. You know, I gave you the metrics at launch, 5% watched at least 15 minutes. We only had 300 titles and our members described them as steamy romance. Steamy romance, which is code for something else that's bad, which is that we just didn't have very much good content. But after a year, we got to maybe 20%. When we launched, it was only on a PC laptop, essentially. That's where people watched. We didn't have on Mac. We didn't have mobile devices. And our insight was we needed to get to the TV because that's where everybody wanted to watch. So we would knock on the door at Xbox and they said, no, you're too small. We'd knock at PlayStation, you're too small. We'd talk to the Wii. These were the big game systems at the time that were connected to a television. And they kept saying no, because you know, at this point, maybe we're up to maybe four or five million members. So nobody would play with us, so we built our own box. And that was that's what you call Project Griffin. And we knew that it was going to be a big success because we had done a painted door test on our site. We said, hey, members, for 70 bucks, you know, would you like a magic box delivered to you that will let you watch on TV? And, and people clicked the button. We said, sorry, you know, it's not available in your zip code or whatever we said. I call that a painted door test. But we had a really strong signal that a lot of people wanted this. So we built the thing. And one month before the launch of this, this will sound very familiar. Our CFO, Barry McCarthy, came back from New York and said, hey, the investment community is not going to buy into this. They think that we're going to become a hardware company. And they know that hardware companies have notoriously low margin. They don't make a lot of money. And they know how hard it will be for us to get good at the thing that Apple is good at, like figuring out how to ship boxes across the Pacific Ocean on time, you know, all the operational stuff. And so, you know, we had a heart to heart with ourselves. And Reed Hastings, he's the CEO of the company. He called me on a Saturday. He said, hey, Gib, I think we're going to cancel the launch of this box. And his question to me was, how do you think Paul will feel about this? Paul Eschger was the product manager who worked for me, was focused on this. And Reed's question was, should I do it via phone or should I show up at his house? I said, you know what? <laughs> Paul's a well-formed adult. I think you can pick up the phone. He's got enough context to understand why we don't think this is a good idea. You know, here are the new learnings, et cetera, which is exactly how it played out. But you can, you can sort of feel the ethos at Netflix about understanding, doing the right thing for the business. This one, I didn't, you know, Paul, frankly, he doesn't feel that stupid about it either. This box became an amazing prototype. So we showed Xbox and PlayStation and we what we could do. Yes, we threw 100 engineers out of the building. 
And that's the formation story for Roku, essentially. And Roku launched their box maybe a year or a year and a half later. In the meantime, Xbox finally said yes. And in their first month, they had a million of their members on the gold membership streaming Netflix to the television. And because the Xbox went so well, they were the number three platform. PlayStation knocked on our door and said, hey, will you do that for us? And we said, yes. And then the Wii came around and said, will you do this for us? And they said, yes. And this obviously expanded where today every device in the world is ready to let you stream Netflix anytime, anywhere. There was a significant learning hiding in there. Our job was to become a streaming platform, not to become a hardware manufacturer. And we knew that if we released our own box, these folks would view us as competitors. They would always view us as having an inside track. And it would be hard to get to a place where every screen in the world is connected to Netflix, which is what happened. Anyways, those two stories, they were both brutal and hard, but I'm trying to give you a sense of what it is to invent the future, right? It's hard, it's messy, it's dirty. As you pointed out, each of those steps in the Glee model are high-level hypotheses. Every one of those strategies that I articulated, including personalization or social, these are high-level theories and hypotheses that are tested, right? And you learn over time. And sometimes it's hard. You know, Michael Rubin focused on that friends and social experiment for four years. Imagine four years of energy and effort and then saying, eh, doesn't work. This is why what we do is hard. Yeah. The thing that I love about your story, too, is that, you know, you're talking about Paul, who just put everything into this. And should the CEO go to his house? I can't even imagine him opening up the door and being like, wow, Reed Hastings is standing on my doorstep. This can't be good. <laughs> First yeah, of all, yeah. it's probably scarier than a phone call. But second of all, like, you're like, he's an adult. He'll get it. How do you build that culture where everybody goes, yeah, it's best for the business? Because I've seen a lot that are completely the opposite, right? It's more about this is my baby. This is my chance to shine. This is what we're going to do. What do you need to make sure that everybody is on the same page, actually making the best choice for the business? How do you instill that in your product managers? How did you guys talk about that as an executive team as well? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. A couple of things about Netflix. So when I joined Netflix, I was probably over 40, right? And so there were a lot of over 40-year-olds. <laughs> okay. Actually, I wasn't quite there, but I was getting there. But we all had kids, you know? And most of us had had success in the past. Like I had sold a company called Creative Wonders to Kevin O'Leary of Shark Tank. You know, we felt successful until we realized that when we sold our company, we gave up on the dream. So at Netflix, we really were all very invested in, in trying to build a great company. As Patty McCord, the head of talent, would say, we were trying to build a company where you could say, I came from a great company, right? So anyways, to answer your question, part of it was just the fact that we're all around 40. For instance, none of us traveled. Travel was the hardest thing to do if you're trying to have some semblance of work-life balance. And because of that, we didn't really do business development. You know, think about that. Business development takes travel. You know, we finally had to hire one, you know, during that era and talking with PlayStation, Wii, et cetera. A couple of things. Reed Hastings, the CEO, he... His first job out of college, he worked as a t math teacher in the Peace Corps in Africa. So he's a teacher. Patty McCord is essentially a teacher. She's the head of talent. 
and then everybody was just trying to build a great company because they felt like the first company they built, you know, and everybody had their different story, wasn't a great company. <laughs> so there's a lot of teaching. Like every quarter, we'd have these quarterly business reviews where you would help engineers, for instance, understand the business dynamics, understand you know, what it takes to improve retention or, or how an improvement of retention from 10% canceling every month to 2% can go from a lifetime value of 100 bucks to 300 bucks. These were all things that everybody in the building understood. One of the key ideas was context, not control. So we spent a lot of time helping people to understand the context that we were operating in. You know, that Glee model, for instance, gave a context. This is how to think about our progress over time. Strategy is an excellent context. These are the high-level theories and hypotheses. These are the proxy metrics we use to evaluate if they're working or not. Here's how we'll make decisions about what not to do or not. That quarterly product strategy meeting, it actually became a mechanism for the culture of the company. That's where you would learn these behaviors. You know, what does it look like to express intellectual curiosity? What does it look like or sound like to be candid? What does it look like or sound like to be courageous? Those are three of the, the values of the Netflix culture. There was also a big learning for us. It was really about culture. You know, for me, I'm always trying to make three things work together. The first is this notion of consumer science, and that's just better living through math and testing. You test these ideas to see if they work. The next is a strategy, and that's just a plan, right? I, I told you the plan that we were going to focus on personalization and social. One of those worked. You know, they got killed by the beast of consumer science. It didn't work in the test. The third one is really cool, which is culture. Culture helps to build this notion of being, you know, at Netflix, these well-formed adults. At the end of the day, people are not there forever, but the culture is. And the culture describes these values, and these values describe the skills and behaviors of everybody in the building. And so what would happen at these quarterly product strategy meetings? Yes, you are learning results about consumer science. Yes, you would hear articulation of product strategy, but you're also learning how to to form good judgment. This is what culture was about. It was helping individuals make great decisions about product, people in the business, sometimes without talking to each other. And that's what the culture was helpful with. As companies get big, they start lumbering, right? They get dragged down by heavy-handed process, et cetera. You can tell I'm sort of a, I'm a problem, like I'm unemployable. I don't like to be told what to do, right? The focus on the culture let bright, talented people to make great independent decisions without talking to each other, which is really cool. Like one example, Netflix proudly launched House of Cards 2013. And then by 2018, Kevin Spacey was implicated in sexual harassment of a young boy, right? The decision to stop House of Cards happened in less than a day. Like, wow, how did that happen? It turned out that Cindy Holland, who had signed them, independently made the decision because it wasn't consistent with Netflix's value of inclusion. So she made that decision in 20 minutes all by herself, which is amazing. That's just an amazing instance of how culture can help people to make great decisions about people, product, and the business without heavy-handed process. I dug in there. I mean, there was one other thing. The Netflix exec team had role-played all of these decisions. They had done cases. And so 
they sort of knew, hey, if the lead actor did this, then you'd cancel. If a supporting actor did this, well, you might not. But they had had those conversations before it even happened, which is totally cool. That is really neat. So it sounds like giving the teams and giving the company, right, these different frameworks, the product strategy framework, these culture guidelines, really painting a picture of how they can make decisions enables the autonomy for them to go out and do that. And I imagine you didn't all know that going in. So how did you, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty here, and it's amazing that we can all learn from it now. But what is that process like trying to figure out what is our culture going to be and how do we enable that? And what's your process for trying these things out and figuring out how you got to where you are? Yeah, I mean, as I get older, I realize that everything is an experiment. Everything, right? How I do my job, what I choose to focus on, what I want my career to be. So on the culture thing at Netflix, I, I gave you a little bit of a sense that, I mean, for instance, when I talked to Netflix before I worked there, I was pretty focused on, hey, are you going to sell the company? Because if you sell the company, I don't want to do it. Like, I want to stay in it, right? And that's what I learned from selling multiple companies. Like, nope, we're not selling the company. So we were all learning together. The culture, uh, I just remember like my first week of work in 2005, there was a deck like a crappy PowerPoint slide. And it just showed as companies get big, processes begin to overwhelm everything that you do. And it tends to scare away talented individuals. So the talent level tends to drop as companies get big. And Netflix, I just saw this articulation and Netflix says there has to be another way. And they alighted on this idea of culture as that other way, uh, which was awesome. And there was this sort of um, primordial PowerPoint deck, you know, standard font right off the, out of Microsoft. What happened is we edited that deck every quarter as a team for four years. So we had this thing called the quarterly business review. Directors and above would go to that meeting every quarter. When I first got there, there were like 40 people at the meeting. You know, when I left, there were 200 people. But every quarter for four years, we edited this document. There was one quarter where I missed that meeting. I was going on vacation to bike the Danube River with my family. And Reed left a message for me because he wanted to know my edits for the deck. Like, oh my God, I've given you so many edits. Like, how could I give you more? It's been four years. That's when I realized that this was a mechanism to really think about and understand the importance of these values, these skills and behaviors. So then the next thing that happened was Reed came to me and said, hey, Gib, why don't you publish the culture deck? And here was his insight. He said, people are showing up their first week of work and they're surprised. I mean, there was one scary thing. It said that it was basically fair performance gets a generous severance package. And that was a very scary thing to bump into after you said yes, okay? So people were surprised by some of these things. So the reason that we published the culture deck so that folks would know what they were getting into and they could self-screen if this was the right environment for them. You know, I published it. So at the time, this is 2009, most of my pals thought I had published it by mistake, which wasn't true. The big surprise to us, and this is the value of experiments, we put it out there 
And it was the most wonderful tactic for recruiting. This was not the intended effect, but it turned out there were machine learning and data science people working in Wall Street in the financial area. They started reading this thing where before they just thought we were like a DVD dog food site or something. They became really intrigued by this culture document. And we started to get really talented individuals from all over the world that were attracted by this thing that was articulated in the culture deck, which was totally cool. So anyways, that's just an example how we were learning and growing together organically, and then the value of these experiments, and some that worked and some that didn't. Yeah, it's a really interesting lesson for, I think, a lot of companies who are trying to approach building a product organization or trying to move more towards you know, a digital strategy or incorporating technology into their strategy. I guess my question for you with them, these companies, I'm sure you've run into a bunch of them too as a consultant now. Everybody's trying to build a product organization these days. Where do they start, right? How do they start to build that culture? What's your advice for leadership in those positions as they're looking to stand up a product organization? Yeah, I mean, if I go specifically on the culture thing, of course, I have tools, models, and frameworks for everything. So mine for culture is what I've learned is there's sort of three things. You, I call it the DEL model, D-E-L. Like maybe people will remember because it's the D-E-L and model. First is you define it. The second is you edit it. And the third is you live it. And then the understanding is this is a forever process. So I just told you that we actually articulated our values, the skills and behaviors, what it means to demonstrate candor, for instance. I mean, it's really a neat document to look at. It would get edited on an ongoing basis. I mean, Netflix added the the notion of inclusion sort of circa 2017, because they had made some mistakes, right? Their head of PR had used the N-word, okay? Twice, which is a fascinating case. But that got Netflix staring at their navel and saying, gosh, we need to do better on this front. And that's why there's now an inclusion value. And it's very well articulated. So that's the editing and then living. And the tricky part of culture, too many companies put a little laminated thing near the water cooler, a plaque that describes these values. And there's two problems I have with that. First, it feels permanent where this thing is going to be lived and edited forever. The second is it just doesn't feel important enough to me, (laughs) okay? So what are the right mechanisms? I sort of referred to it. I invented this quarterly product strategy meeting at Netflix, and it turned out that ended up being a mechanism for the culture. Leaders learned how to behave and to demonstrate the skills and behaviors of these different values. That was a mechanism. I just gave you another mechanism Imagine what it is to edit the same freaking document for four years. That is actually a mechanism to help you understand how important these ideas are. At the end of the day, culture is all about who you hire and we let them self-screen, who you promote. You know, every time somebody was promoted to director or VP, there was a celebration because it it was about them being a culture carrier, them living the Netflix culture. And then the other thing was who you cut. You would let people go. They might demonstrate amazing results, but they were living outside of Netflix's values. So a mechanism is, of culture is essentially who do you hire, who do you promote, and who do you let go? These are all the things that we learned over time. But in a big picture, I'm trying to describe this Dell model, how you define, edit, 
and live through these various mechanisms cultured on an ongoing basis. And it's forever. Yeah, it, I love how you talk about this too, you know, combined with product strategy to help build guidelines and models for these companies. When I was just talking about the product transformation companies, too often I go into these companies and I see leadership treat product management or implementing product management, especially in a company that I call like software enabled, which means they're not, they're not just selling software and they're not a SaaS business, right? They're, they are selling insurance. They're selling something for the banks or something like that, but they're trying to build some kind of software functionality in the back end. They're not really seeing product management as like a strategic thing, right? It's more about keep the funnel for the developers going. Let's help prioritize. Let's do that. What would be your advice for these companies to change perspective? Because I think Netflix is a fantastic model because it's so clearly cut with the strategy. And yet, when I give this example, sometimes to those companies, they poo-poo it. They're like, oh, well, that's Netflix. Of course they can do that. And I don't understand why these companies can't see that they could too, if they changed a lot of those things. Like, sorry, I'm on a, like a rant now because I'm, I'm annoyed because I think it's just so clear how you expanded this business model through like a great balance of a clear product strategy and culture that really defines it and creates the autonomy. You know, if you're approaching this from this product company, like what do leaders need to do to help see product management as a strategic muscle there? Yeah, I get the, but that's Netflix. Remember, Netflix was a crappy startup. Every startup's a crappy startup, right? I mean, things start, they're messy and dirty. So this is why I write. So I, I wrote a series on Medium called How to Define Your Product Strategy. It, it, it's like 12 three-minute chapters, each is a model. And so I try to give the tools that people can exercise these ideas on their own. I even put a, a preform on a Google slide at the end of it, right? So you can freaking build your presentation. I tend to approach these problems and questions the same way. I'm convinced that the companies that you just talked about would never hire me, okay? <laughs> I would be a bad fit. I'm just thinking about Chag. I mean, Chag is a textbook rental and homework help company. It was a crappy little company too. It, it was trying to let college students sell used couches to each other, like Craigslist for college. Well, that sucks. They tried an idea which was to rent textbooks. And their, their first execution was so poor, they actually would buy a book from Amazon, send it to the student's address, and then say, hey, when you're done, send it back to us. Okay, that was the, you know, the MVP, if you will, for textbook rental, but it worked. Uh, at Chegg, I walked into it, you know, applying some of the, the thinking that I've talked about. I said, hey, we're going to get big on textbook rental, then we're going to lead e-textbooks, and then we're going to expand into other student services. And guess what? I was wrong. We got big on textbook rental, but it turns out the time frame for e-textbooks is way longer than I hoped for. I mean, it still hasn't happened for a variety of reasons. So I had to amend. I said, we're going to get big on textbook. We're going to lead high margin digital services. We ended up buying four or five companies and figured out the answer. So we got big on textbooks. We led homework help. Chegg has something called Chegg Study. Today, if that's a $600 million company, half is textbook rental. The other half is basically a monthly program called Chegg Study. Students are paying about 15 bucks a month for that. It's all digital. And they're experimenting with the third step, which is other student services, helping you to find a summer internship, helping you to find a job, all of these things. So that's my answer to, well, that, of course, Netflix could do that, but there's a zillion startups around the world that figure out how to go through these, this radical change, which is, I just think 
exciting and incredibly empowering. So anyways, I'm just trying to give people a consistent way to think and talk with each other about this stuff. You know, at the end of the day, I'm always reinforcing, you're trying to align these three forces. You're trying to embrace the consumer science, the experimentation. You do need to have a a strategy, a plan, but half of it's going to be wrong and that's okay. And then you're trying to build a culture where individuals can make great decisions about people, product, and the business without overwhelming the organization with mind-numbing process, okay? And so I feel like those ideas are relevant to any company at any stage in the world. And I'm never a consultant. I am a teacher, so I do product strategy workshops all over the world where I'm really just trying to help people develop that shared language. And then very quickly develop a swag, a stupid wild ass guess for all of these components that I just talked about. And it's fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. And I think that's a good takeaway for everybody too, that this is just a, it's a process. It's like an experiment, right? It's a bunch of hypotheses that you need to learn from. And it's not something that you just set in stone and go away with it. So very good words to live by and nice food for thought. So thanks so much for being with us, Gib. Where can everybody learn more about you and your writing and your product strategy? Yeah. So my current passion. So last year I did 120 talks, workshops, and exec events. You can learn all about that stuff at gibsonbiddle.com, my baby website. My current passion is I'm writing more. That's one of my answers to how to be more leveraged. So I have a fun experiment. It's called Ask Gib. So if you do a Google search for Ask Gib, it'll take you to my Ask Gib PM newsletter on Substack. So I, I launched it about two months ago. You'll see I'm, I'm hacking, I'm experimenting. And right now I have 2,600 subscribers. So it's been great fun. And really what I'm trying to do is build a little community around that. So over time, I'll bring everyone together and we can all help each other and answer all these questions with me somewhere in the middle of all that mess. (laughs) Anyways, so www.gibsonbiddle.com. Actually, just gibsonbiddle.com. My daughter says, nobody says www anymore. Or ask Gib. Just plug it into Google and you'll, you'll learn a lot about me. Great. Make sure you go check out Gib. Well, thanks so much for being on it. Thanks, Melissa. It's been great fun. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in person someday. Won't that be exciting? So exciting. I cannot wait.